next lecture is on Mencius. <clears throat> if you don't know Mencius, he was one of the primary students of Confucius, and we'll talk about uh, why I'm talking about Mencius instead of Confucius. But basically, so I can sneak in two philosophers on one evening. That's really, that's really what I'm doing. I'm cheating. Um, but importantly, if you want to start talking about Mencius, you first want to start talking about irrigation. I know that's why you all came here, because you thought, let's hear about irrigation. Uh, so the, the key element, one of the key elements in China, in Chinese history, is it's an agricultural civilization. In fact, all early civilizations were based on a very limited set of crops. In China in particular, however, the, the, by far the most advanced irrigation systems in the world were in China for basically most of human history. Uh, Mahindra Daro had some very impressive works as well. But what this means for Confucius and Mencius as we talk about them is if you live in any area of China, and this goes, we're talking about uh, 1000 BC coming this way. So for the last three millennia, this has been true. If you lived in China, often where you were got its water from someplace else. And so anytime there's a civil unrest or disturbance, it wasn't just that the crops got run over by the troops or your facilities got burned down or some of the farmers got killed, all of which is bad. But you would disrupt ongoing, basically civil works projects that often provided water necessary for the growth of your crops. When that happens, everybody dies. The, the, the amount of... of uh, catastrophe that that is brought about by a disruption of large-scale irrigation projects is almost unimaginable. And so if you look at the history of civil wars and wars in general, often the Chinese, uh, like the Warring States period, I mean, they've had all of these interregnums of, of incredible violence, have the highest percentage of death of, of, of basically any conflicts in history. Many of them are they're right at the top. And it's not because so many people died fighting, because it, it, you know, it's not that efficient to spear people or shoot them with arrows. It was the disruption in the agricultural systems, primarily the, the irrigation, but also the, the moving of food, uh, that would cause mass starvation. And, and by the way, everybody would starve. Of course, it's always better to be rich. Um, but but you know, if there's no food, there's just no food. And, and it sort of would disrupt whole regions. And then you would fall into chaos, and then you would get order. Now, it's important to keep this in mind because both Confucius and Mencius were, were rural. They were agricultural philosophers. They come from the rural, well, they, they're not, they were part of a rural aristocracy that was based on agriculture. And out there, their worldview is the worldview of people who grow up on the land with the necessities of an agricultural system shaping all of their outlook. So if we look at Confucius, which is uh, 551 to 479 BC-ish, right? So these, these early dates are hard to track down. So, so 2,500 years ago, we're going back a bit. But one of the wonderful things about Chinese history and philosophy is Confucius repeatedly states, I'm a conservative. I just want to look back to the good times in the olden days. Right? So you go back 2,500 years and Confucius is saying, it used to be great. Three or four or five or 600 years ago, it was really great. And we've sort of fallen on hard times, but we can return to good times. And so e even 2,500 years ago, his worldview was conservative and backwards looking. 
and focused on a couple of things. Most significantly, order. You want a society that is orderly. And then how do you build that order was what they talked about uh, um, sort of relentlessly, almost. Now, Mencius is important because Mencius is sort of to Confucius, it's a loose analogy, but kind of like Plato is to Socrates. Confucius didn't write a lot down. What we have attributed to his sayings are sort of, well, I've got a few quotes which we'll read. They tend to be very short, snippets of dialogue, bits of outlook. It's not a coherent system. It wasn't developed or ramified by Confucius. There's no big book of Confucian works. The main works of Confucius, perhaps in the Analects, uh, are relatively short, and many of them obviously weren't uh, done by Confucius. They were by his students. But it's not systematic at all. What happens when you get to Mencius, who in, in the, the history is, or the story is, that he studied with Confucius's grandson. Whether that's true, again, slightly dubious. Um, but, but so that generation, 100-ish years later, uh, 370, is that three, yeah, 372, 289 there. Um, again, ish, there's some question about the exact dates. He took the Confucian system and really expanded and systematized it so it could actually be put in pretty effective uh, order. And then it was. And then you'll see why this is so important. So if we go back to Confucius again, he's rural, agriculture. He's a, he's a functionary for the aristocracy. And the aristocracy's power and money and position comes from owning land. And you need a couple of things when you own land, particularly in the ancient world. One, you need land, you need water, and you need workers. And one way you can get workers is to enslave them. And so the ancient world is filled with civilizations that were perfectly happy to enslave their entire populations. Confucianism uh, really repeatedly said, and Mencius develops this, that what you want to do is attract people. The good ruler draws people to him. Always a him, by the way. Uh, women, essentially dogs. Uh, the good ruler draws people to him. You don't have to oppress them. You don't have to beat them. You don't have to threaten them. They will come to you. And so one way to think about wealth and to think about power is simply the fact that the people want to come to your state, your region, the part of land that you control, and this makes you richer and more powerful because you have more laborers, and if you have more arable land, then you can generate more food, which is what everything, all wealth is generated from this in the ancient world. Second important thing about Confucius to note, uh, unlike virtually any other uh, system that was being developed at this time, is it's almost free, it's totally free of God, there are no gods, almost, I mean, it's a little hint here and there, but almost totally free, anti-superstition focused on the human. It's an incredibly human system, and it always comes back to people, people, personal relationships, uh, the good ruler, the good father, the good son, the good daughter, the good friend, without reference to, or with only the most vague references to uh, divinity, and it's always sort of airy and vague. There's never really a strong sense that there's a God that you should worry about or there's all these divine rules that you should worry about. It really is a human-centric, personal system of government. And all the analogies are drawn from that. They're either drawn from agriculture or they're drawn from like the family, famously, as we'll see. So the cardinal virtues, um, 
that are, are promoted by Confucius and then developed systematically by Mencius are, as I have them here, is, the first one is benevolence, uh, and that is the sense of compassion for others and acts appropriate to these feelings. There you go. The, the one cardinal virtue is, is benevolence or compassion. And over and over again, both Confucius, but particularly Mencius, said it is not enough to think these things. It's not enough to feel them. One's acts must convey. In fact, that's how you know who a good person is, or a good ruler, or a good father, again, a good son. A good it's because their acts are appropriate to a sense of compassion for others. So it just that composed their worldview. Uh, the second one is ye is righteousness. Um, and this is really, it's an interesting sort of a negative cast here. It's the act of feeling repulsed, essentially, at the, at the prospect of either doing something wrong. So if somebody offers you a bribe, not taking the bribe is the correct thing to do. But if you were truly developed your sense of righteousness, you would be offended. In fact, you'd be physically repulsed by the notion of taking a bribe. You, you wouldn't even be think about it, because it would be like, oh, would you like to put your hand in this fire? You go, no, right? You just pull your hand. I don't want to burn my hand. It's that righteousness is that sense of withdrawing from uh, terrible things. Also, any sense of being mistreated or being um, condemned or looked down on or, or, or being, uh, getting short shrift in any way. So it's both a sense of doing the correct thing, not, not doing wrong, being repulsed by evil, but also not allowing it to be imposed on you. You, you don't allow that because that would disturb your position and disturb your, your sense of yourself. And then wisdom, ji, uh, uh, my pronunciation, of course, incorrect in every instance, uh, the capacity to discern the nature of affairs and to act in keeping uh, with the other virtues. So wisdom for them was really, if you have righteousness and you have benevolence, Wisdom is knowing how to act, given that, and given these situations. And if you read the Analects, but particularly if you read Mencius and a lot of other Confucius scholars, what you'll see is it's, you know, uh, Emperor Wu chatted with uh, his servant and said, what do I do in this instance? And then a the, you know, couple of servants will argue about what is the correct course of action and how you're supposed to feel and why, and we'll see some of this here. Uh, and the other uh, extracts, but it's always this conversation of, well, what's the righteous thing? What's the benevolent thing? How do you, is this compassionate, or does the does this aspect overwhelm that aspect? And it's always around concrete uh, questions, rarely about abstract questions. It's like, oh, if your father dies, of course, being your father, he deserves a better funeral than your mother because fathers are more important than women, right? Okay, men are more important than women. Ah, but if your father dies when you're young and you're poor or not very wealthy and your mother dies and you're wealthier, well, now that you can afford to do a more elaborate ceremony for her, shouldn't you? Even though that would be more elaborate than the ceremony you did for your father, right? So it's what do you do when the various virtues conflict? How do you decide what is the correct course of action? How do you weigh this out in your heart, in your acts? And then finally, one that we really struggle with because we have no sense of this, um, is propriety, li. Uh, 
And this was a huge one. This was really, really vitally important. It's one of the things we struggle with understanding in, in China to this day uh, is, is the fact that to show respect and honor all ritual, rituals, not just in empty action, but in thought and feeling. So, so the, the reason you show respect to your parents, because that is the correct thing to do. A, a good state, a, a good emperor is like a father. The citizen is like the son. In the family, the father has duties and responsibilities. The son has duties and responsibilities. The next son has duties. The mother has duties. It's all spelled out. And fulfilling those duties and obligations is propriety. But you don't do them sort of burdened down and overwhelmed like, ah, oh, I got to go to my brother's birthday party. God, I hate going to those things, right? That's wrong. That's actually a lack of virtue. Virtue is feeling the desire to do what is appropriate and doing it um, from, from, a, from a, uh, a sense of goodness and well-being. And when you cultivate it to that sense, doing the correct thing becomes what you want to do. And the idea is if people cultivate these virtues, then eventually society will be orderly. If people do not cultivate these virtues, society will be disorderly. And if, just to contrast with our system today, in the American system, we believe in a system of laws. If you have government of laws that follows laws, then you will have an orderly society. People who do not follow the law will be punished. People who do follow the law will not be punished. This is practically the reverse of that. If you have virtuous people, they will do what is right without laws. Because they're, this is what virtue is. Virtue doesn't do the right thing because there's a law that says you must do it. Virtue does the correct thing because it is the correct thing to do. And so our notion of an abstract, external system, which we can either conform or not conform to, and then that somehow brings order to society, they thought was silly, and we'll see in these quotes. Um, whereas they felt that the only way you can have an orderly, reasonable society is if you have virtuous people. Because people can always skirt laws and you know, uh, do something that allows them to get out of a situation or to commit a crime and get away with it. It's the famous saying that the law is the last refuge of the, of the scoundrel, right? That notion, that's the notion. Oh, we use the law to protect us when it's convenient because we've done something nasty. See, if you're virtuous in the Confucian ideal, you wouldn't do nasty things. Um, so let's, let's flip this over here and we'll read a couple of quotes from... from uh, Confucius, I give, are these all Minchus? I thought I put a couple of Confucius quotes in here. No, these are both Minchus quotes. So we'll start with the Minchus quote to give you a sense of this. Um, central to this, now it's, it's kind of hard, philosophically, Minchus makes an incredible claim, almost unique in the ancient world, and that is that men, all men, men and women, all people, have the innate capacity and desire to be virtuous. It's born in us. 
We are essentially good, or at least we have the capacity to be good. It's natural. So here's the, the crucial uh, quote here. It's longish, but I want to read it because it's so important. When I say that all men have a mind which cannot bear to see the suffering of others, my meaning may be illustrated thus. Even nowadays, if men suddenly see a child about to fall into a well, they will, without exception, experience a feeling of alarm and distress. They will feel so, not as ground on which they may gain the favor of the child's parents, nor as a ground on which they may seek the praise of their neighbors and friends, nor from the dislike of, to the reputation of having been ascent, uh, unmoved by such a thing. From this case, we may perceive that the feeling of commiseration is essential to man, that the feeling of shame and dislike is essential to man, that the feeling of modesty and complacence is essential to man, and that the feeling of approving and disapproving is essential to man. The feeling of commiseration is the principle of benevolence. The feeling of shame and dislike is the principle of righteousness. The feeling of modesty and complacence is the principle of propriety. The feeling of approval and disapproval is the principle of knowledge or wisdom. This, so, so it's just, he, he gives you this imaginary scenario. If you're walking down the street, some village you've never been, you don't know anybody there, and you see a child tottering on a well, you don't stop and go, I wonder if that child's parents are wealthy. I wonder if anybody is watching. I wonder what the outcome of this would be that benefits me. Generally, we gasp and jump to save the child without thinking. That's the key. We do it without thinking. It's a native impulse in us. And Minchus says this demonstrates, of course, this is a huge philosophical argument, but he says for Minchus, this demonstrates without a doubt that we have the capacity innate in us and, and the desire to do what is good and benevolent and compassionate. And that when it's clear and nothing gets in interferes with us, we will do the benevolent thing without thinking. When we know it, what to do. In this case, we know what to do, so we don't even think about it, we just do it. What gets confusing is that the world is often much more complicated than that. So this is where wisdom comes in. Wisdom is the capacity to look at a situation and go, how do I respond like a child falling into the well? What is, where is the clarity so I know the right act at any moment? He goes a step forward. Both Confucius and Minchus go much step, one step further, however, and using an agricultural uh, analogy, which is not a surprise for them, uh, Minchus says, but this is a sprout in a man, in a woman. And it has to be nurtured. It has to be uh, in an environment where it can flourish. And if it's given the right kinds of soil, the right water, the right tending, then all of the virtues will grow and expand in a man. He says almost no one, even a sage, is not virtuous when he's starving. You, you, it's hard to be virtuous when you're starving. Hard to be virtuous when you're threatened with violence. There's a direct from Minchus, by the way. This is almost word-for-word quotes from it. It's, it, it. When you don't have shelter and you're freezing, hard to be virtuous. So he says, if you give the people food, if you give the people shelter, and if you make sure the people are free from violence, then you can cultivate compassion in them. Then you can cultivate benevolence and righteousness and wisdom and the correct approach to ritual. 
So that the first responsibility of a good ruler, an aristocrat or an emperor or a duke, is to make sure that the people are fed and clothed and they have houses and they're not threatened with violence because then you can cultivate the virtues in them. And, and the collected works of Mencius and the Alex Confucius are just sort of an endless discussion of these sorts of issues. So here's another example. This is, this is the one, I'll make sure I've got the right ones here. Yeah, this is the first work, the uh, first uh, part of the works of Mencius. Um, Mencius went to see King Hugh of Leong. The king said, Venerable sir, since you have not counted it far to come here, a distance of a thousand li, may I presume that you are provided with counsels to profit my kingdom? So hey, you've come a long way to see me. You must be here to tell me something that's going to profit my kingdom. And Mencius replied, Why must your majesty use the word profit? What I am provided with are counsels to benevolence and righteousness, and these are my topics only. If your majesty say, what is to be done to profit my kingdom, the great officers will say, what is to be done to profit our families? And if the inferior officers and the common people will say, what is to be done to profit our uh, persons? Superiors and inferiors will try to snatch this profit, the one from the other, and the kingdom will be endangered. In the kingdom of 10,000 chariots, the murderer of his sovereign shall be the chief of a family of 1,000 chariots. In the kingdom of a thousand chariots, the murderer of his prince shall be the chief of a family of a hundred chariots. To have a thousand and ten thousand and a hundred and thousand cannot be said, can, can be said not to be a large allotment. But if righteousness be put last and profit be put first, they will not be satisfied without snatching all. There never has been a benevolent man who neglected his parents. There never has been a righteous man who made his sovereign an after consideration. Let your majesty also say benevolence and righteousness and let these be your only things. Why must you use the word prophets? This should resonate with us a little bit. <laughs> I, I should think the, the, the theme of how does this profit us? What's in it for me? Who makes the money? Where, where, is the, where are the goods, right? What, who pick, follow the money? When well, we always follow the money, that'll take you to the truth. So 2,300 years ago, Mencius when asked this precise question, not an unreasonable question from a, from a ruler, from a duke, um, says, no, you've got it all wrong. And again, it is this, this theory of the, the, of the virtuous person. If the ruler isn't virtuous, why would the aristocrats be virtuous? If the aristocrats aren't virtuous, why would the people be virtuous? And if the people aren't virtuous and the aristocrats aren't virtuous and the king isn't virtuous or the ruler, you're in trouble. Nothing good, you're, you're going to get assassinated. He just says this. He says, even if somebody has a thousand chariots, they'll say, I want more. Because that's what you've said. You've said, I'm in it for profit. I'm in it for more. He says, all you're doing is setting an example for your own people to kill you. Because this is what you're doing. Don't ask about profit. Ask about the whole, the, the, the four virtues. How can I be benevolent? How can I be compassionate? How can I be wise? These are why I've come to your, come to your uh, state. This is what I'm here to help you with. And if, and if I can't help you with that, I'll leave. It's important to note that both Confucius and Mencius sort of wandered around trying to catch on with a, 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 a king or a duke or a count that they, that they could counsel and lead to wisdom. Neither of them had much success. Uh, it, is, it, is, it is sad to say that they were sort of, uh, they, they struggled with this because it turns out 
you know, the, the, the world intervened. The, the leaders really were more interested in, in profit. The world, they really were much more interested in um, worldly power. And Mencius was actually sort of vaguely tricked into supporting a military venture, uh, which uh, he, he did not support and which went very wrong. And so he retired, sort of said, well, that's it. I kind of I give up. Um, but, for example, another one of the things he says is the, uh, I forget when one of the dukes, is having an ox brought in to be slaughtered. And um, he sees the ox sort of bellowing in the, in the courtyard, and he says, you know, set it free. I, I, I don't want to kill the ox. And then he's criticized for this because it makes it look like he's cheap, that he's supposed to do these sacrifices for the good of the kingdom, but it looks like he's, he's just sort of doesn't want to spend the money, essentially. Um, and Mencius says, well, well, don't worry about that. What's important is... You are doing it for the compassion of the ox. And the, and the king says, yes, I was doing it for the compassion of the ox. I just didn't want to see it suffer. And he says, now, aren't your people more important than an ox? Aren't they suffering? If your people are going hungry, take the compassion you feel for the ox and grow it. Meditate on that. Let that fill you. Then you'll be compassionate to your people. Set the ox free, set your people free. Let your compassion flow to them. And so it's really this almost complete reversal uh, of, of our notion of following laws and rules and order. Because it says, goodness and a clear society, an orderly society, comes from people who, again, do not need laws and order. It comes from people who from the model of the family, if you're the father, you fulfill your responsibilities and duties. If you're the son, you fulfill the responsibilities and duties. One of the rules that, that, that Confucius, I believe, lays down, this is not Mencius, it's Confucius, uh, says if in a family the father dies and the elder son takes over, which is what would happen, and nothing changes for three years, you know you have a good family. Because the son will just keep doing exactly what the father did. Naturally. Because if he hasn't changed anything in three years, he's not going to change anything, right? It's pretty clear. It's, things are just going to go on the way they were. Now, for us, this sounds incredibly stifling, right? We're like, oh, you know, go out, make yourself, do what you want, be you. Uh, it, the Chinese model is very different. You, will, you can express yourself through cultivating the virtues, through benevolence. So, the, the, so Confucius starts this. Mencius, his key, key student, um, really starts spreading it, develops into a system. And why this is important is if you look at the chart here in the uh, Han Dynasty, 206 BC to 220 AD, Informal examinations for some officials based on the Confucian classics began to be implemented. So this is 2,200 years ago. Up until this point, and it's still all over the world today, by the way, the way you choose who's going to be your generals, who's going to be your accountants, they're either members of your family or members of the important aristocracy. It's totally genealogical. Family, 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 family. Friends of the family, important families. They control all the government positions. They control all the wealth. They control the land. They control everything. This is new. 
This is the notion that, hey, let's try and select the best. And by the best, we mean the most virtuous as trained to the Confucius system. And again, this isn't very systematic at first. And basically, it was really a way to sift through different aristocrats. It, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't like the common people are going to school and learning Confucianism and getting jobs. That's not going to happen yet. It's coming. But it was a beginning of like a sort of civil service system. You had to learn the ancient classics. You had to learn the appropriate rituals. And you had to learn Confucianism, the idea to cultivate the correct virtues. Key amongst this is the capacity to discern who amongst all these people is actually honest and trying to help you and who is just trying to profit themselves. A question we all struggle with today. Right? When we say that politicians are venal, that they're corrupt, that they're stealing, it means that when we voted for them, we thought they were going to try and do what was right, in theory. But now we realize that they're really just trying to enrich themselves. This is a problem. It's not a new problem, right? This wasn't just invented recently. This is a problem as old as, as we have organized governments. How do you select those people who are actually trying to do good and help versus those people who are just here to rip you off, steal your chariots, embezzle, and promote their own friends and family? Civil service exam. This is the idea. And here it starts. This goes off with breaks, right? Because the Chinese history, there's wars and interregnums and explosions and then order, and then, you know, comes back. And the Tang Dynasty, this is 618 to 907 AD now, uh, increased the complexity of the exams, expanded who could take the exams, and added more subjects. The classics played a central role. So, so now we're talking almost a thousand years. Well, well, actually, a thousand years after the death of Confucius, uh, in one of the great dynasties in Chinese history, Confucianism becomes increasingly important because the larger and more prosperous the empire became, the more difficult it became to manage, the more you needed a, a professional civil service. Confucian, right at the heart of it. At this point, it starts, if you start learning your letters in Chinese, not letters, I guess, symbols in Chinese, what you would learn was a simplified child's versions of the Analects of Confucius, his main sayings and his main phrases. So when you were learning to draw your characters, you were actually the first thing you would write out. You, know, you wouldn't do C spot run. You would say, the good son obeys the father. You know, this, this, was the, this was the order of learning. It would be the first thing you would learn to write. The good emperor does this. The, you, you know, the virtuous son does this. The good friend does that. You cultivate Li by doing this. The appropriate ritual, is that's what you learn to write. So your entire education, and of course literacy was rare. I mean, it was an elite that was being literate, being, uh, learning to write at all um, in China. Was not, it wasn't just a little bit focused on Confucianism, it was Confucianism. I mean, this is what you learned, this is what you wrote. And because Confucius had been himself influenced by some of the classics that were also on the exams, it was a very tight curriculum. It also meant that the elites throughout China all shared the same educational background and outlook. So you have all these regions, different families, different aristocracies, but the governing elites, no, they had one system, one background, one outlook. They could communicate with each other. It was sort of a club, essentially. 
um, that you entered through examinations and excellence. And then the Song Dynasty, 960 to 1279, is where Mencius really comes into his own because this is, Mencius is sort of Neo-Confucianism. He took Confucius, created a system, Neo-Confucianism, and in the Song Dynasty, for various reasons, political reasons, they wanted to expand the franchise. They wanted to get more people involved. They wanted to sort of push down the power of the aristocracy. And so they said, you know, hey, let's get more people taking the exams. So there were more subjects, and Mencius became, I mean, he was already important, but Mencius became more or less what you, what you were learning. You were learning other classics, but it was Mencius's take on Confucianism that set the tone. And one way to think about it is basically from 1000 AD until 1900, that is what you learned. The imperial exam system became the centerpiece of education. Anybody who was going to be educated was going to learn the Neo-Confucian classics. Here we go. They were influenced by Buddhism. There are other influences. Again, Mongols come in, shake things up. But in the long run, Confucianism, Confucianism spreads to Korea, spreads to Taiwan. Everywhere the Chinese went, they took the system. In fact, the Koreans in some way became better Confucianists than, than the Chinese were. It's a very interesting development in history. They started sending back Confucius studies back to China. Like, hey, look what we learned. They're like, ooh, that's impressive. Uh, you know, so, but, but this worldview spread and lasted for, I mean, it was part of the imperial exam system on and off for over 2,000 years. It was what being educated, it's what it meant, essentially. You learned rituals, you learned some music, learned to play the flute, and you learned your Confucian classics. And then you got the 1900s, right? Here we come, modern world comes crashing in. And we know what the modern world tells us. The modern world says, hey, make money. Be you, be free. On one hand, this is great. This is the American dream. You know, go out, explore, move around, do what you want. Follow your dream. This is not a Chinese message, by the way. This is, this is, Confucius never said, follow your dream. Confucius said, sit quietly, study, and meditate, and reflect on the compassionate or benevolent thing to do, which is a completely different message. And part of this is, we embrace a level of chaos. We're just happy with it. I mean, it doesn't bother us. And you can think of society as sort of personal liberty. The more personal liberty you have, the more chaos you have, the more disorder. The less personal liberty, the more order you can have. And so, so it's not so much a question of, oh, well, they're just tamping down on personal liberty, which is sometimes true. But what they're really trying to do is up the content of order, because the cost of disorder has always been catastrophic. You know, 25% of the population dying, which is historically a, a case from the a warring states period, which is vastly more. I mean, it makes World War II look like nothing. We're talking just an unbelievable number of deaths because of starvation. We, we got another example of this in the Great Leap Forward. Mao's, uh, you know, horrific, inhuman attempt to modernize China no one's exactly sure how many people died. Somewhere between 20 and 50 million people starved to death. Why? Because he tried to mess around with the way agriculture was done. 
He tried to change the traditional patterns, tried to make everybody start making iron and doing all these crazy things and disrupted the system that had been in place for literally thousands of years. And every time in Chinese history when that system gets disrupted, you get the same thing. 30 to 50 million people starve to death. It's the most horrific, it's the, it's the greatest mass die-off of the 20th century. It wasn't World War II, it wasn't the concentration camps, it wasn't the gulags of Russia. As horrible as all those were, it was a great leap forward. And it was an attempt to basically undo this history, modernize in one leap. Get rid of all this tradition. Ditch it. And so, not surprisingly, when communism comes along, it has a lot of problems with the Confucius system. Not the least of which is Confucianism teaches that your first loyalty is to your parents and to your family. Minchus actually says that if, if a man you know, would obey his emperor instead of his father, he's, he does not know what's right. That your loyalty to your family is, trumps everything else. Of course, any sort of totalitarian government can't have this. It has to say your first order of duty is to the state. And so I, I give you two pieces of propaganda. These are from communist posters trying to fight uh, uh, Confucianism and Mencius' theories. Uh, in, these are both from, from the 1940s and 50s. But they have these sort of lurid posters. I didn't have room to put them here, but it says, the caption is there, um, when Confucius was about 30 years old, he began a private school collecting disciples far and wide, which is true. He strictly regulated the social class restrictions of who could enroll, extorting tuition from all his students. True, except for perhaps the extorting part. At that time, a person of slave ancestry who lacked personal freedom had no right to receive an education. The children of the aristocracy and the officialdom came to study one after another. Confucius made use of oral instructions, gathering disciples and forming factions, training faithful lackeys who would restore the slavery system. Uh, the, the next post here. Amidst the great social revolution, the government of the slaveholding class was represented by Confucius. In 1551 BCE, the state of Lu, Confucius was born into a declining slaveholding family. He was the second eldest amongst the siblings, and hence the name Old Number Two. Confucius constantly bore in mind the fact that he himself was of a later generation of the slaveholding aristocracy. When he was young, he loved to set up little bowls and dishes as sacrificial vessels and imitate the kowtowing rituals to his aristocratic ancestry. The charge here is clear. Conservatism means slaveholding. We want to liberate the peasants, who, by the way, we're, we're just needed some liberating, right? I mean, the, the, the communists weren't all wrong. Um, we're here to liberate the peasants, throw off the aristocratic overthrowers and their chief spokesman, Confucius. Don't believe all this stuff. This is just a bunch of lies to make slaveholding and crushing the people look good. Now, of course, there's some truth to this, not, what, not from Confucius, but people were perfectly happy to justify what they were doing under the Confucius model. But it was this model of conservatism. It really was. It said, look to the past. Keep things the way they were. We're sorry you're a peasant. Um, but, you know, don't, don't worry about that. Eventually, the exam system was, in fact, opened up to include just about everybody. I mean, the very poorest of the poor couldn't really participate. But 
almost everybody else could. And it was hugely competitive. Thousands of students would take them. They had little boxes that they would put them in where they'd take these exams because it was your ticket to a better life. It was the way that you moved up. So sort of a, a, an incredibly intense version of our modern SAT tests. And we'll see how, how this works out. Um, but the communist system wanted to overthrow that. So they wanted to liberate the peasants. In theory, what they really wanted to do was remove a system of belief that said totalitarianism is wrong, a leader is supposed to be compassionate, people are supposed to be helped, um, and that your first loyalty is to a, a system of ethics that's internal, not a party creed, not a legal system. It's an internal system of virtues that you cultivate for yourself and that is focused on the family and the village. In, in, in fact, this is where it ends up being lived. Um, so this didn't work out too well for the communists because they, 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 the part of the Cultural Revolution and the Great uh, Leap Forward, these, both of these incredible tragedies, was specifically to exterminate Confucianism, but it didn't work. 2,000 years cannot be erased in 50 years or 40 years, even when you're willing to kill as many people as it takes. Even with 60 or 70 million total dead, uh, the system still sort of strove on. So after that, what we've experienced over the last 20 years, the rise of China, as we call it, this loosening of Chinese, the westernizing of China, opening up of the borders, the importing of knowledge and technology, the growth of the economy, uh, this boom, this profit, has been extraordinary. But what's happened is now everybody, you know, Chinese people are not stupid. They know this is not communism. Everybody's clear that this is not a communism. This is not work. This, this is something new and different. And so now the Chinese Communist Party is faced with this problem. We don't want Western ideas because it's too chaotic. Remember, their system is to this day, they really do not like chaos. They want order. We all kind of like order, but again, how much we're willing to tolerate varies. And so they're like, well, what do we do? Communism's dead, it's been, you know, it didn't work. People don't want to go with communism, but we don't want to go with Western democracy, liberal ideas. What can we go with? Hmm, how about Confucianism? So in the last five years, they've opened over a thousand schools of traditional Confucianism, and they have the goal is to open 10,000, I believe, in the next four. Uh, so right now, the Chinese Communist government is vastly, I mean, 10,000 schools. Even in a country of a billion people, that is a lot of schools. And these, some of these are big schools, a lot of students. Let's turn back to Confucianism. This is the system. A system that will give us order and prosperity in virtuous society. Because look at what they're struggling with. If anybody follows Chinese government problems, one of the big pushes they have on is government corruption. The officials are just stealing the place blind. Well, how do you fight this? Why wouldn't you steal the place blind? What does the capitalist ethos say? The best thing you can do is get money. So the purpose of being in government position is to profit. If that's not the pur purpose of being in a government position, what could it possibly be? Ah, don't ask what the profit is. 
ask what is benevolent, ask what is virtuous. Right? And so because they've lost the values of the Communist Party, those have been, you know, they've, they've lost all possible resonance. People just don't believe them. They're looking for a new elite governing virtue that will allow them to continue to rule, to have efficacy in their own country and their own history, um, so that they can basically maintain power, but within a new structure. They need a new structure, and they know this. And the structure they've chosen is Confucianism, which is really the exposition of Neo-Confucianism by Mencius. So if you look around the world today, probably the single most influential philosophical system is Confucianism. It is the central tenet of the lives of over a billion people. And it's growing. It's not receding. It's growing. In fact, it's in this incredible dynamic struggle. If you look, in, um, if you look at sort of the Middle East right now, uh, the, you know, uh, Islamic fundamentalism in its non-terroristic mode, I mean, terror is always a bad idea, but Islamic fundamentalism in its more uh, reflective mode, meditative mode, is saying we do not like the values of the West. We're looking back to earlier values of the Quran and our own civilizations. And so it is this war of ideals and philosophy that's going on. But it's also happening in China. Communism failed, they know that. The economy is booming, but that seems to be having run its course. It's a bit soft at the moment, which creates problems, stress in your society. So same impulse. Let's look back. What did we have that was good? What they had was what they have, Confucianism. So another thing that's going on in China today, I mean, right now today, is this uh, big um, boom in Confucius ceremonies. So people are beginning, for the first time in quite a while, having large, elaborate Confucius weddings based on the uh, ancient traditions and rituals um, with, with overseen by Confucius officials with, with you know, the sort of big, elaborate red robes and dresses and incense burning. Uh, the respect for parents and family is, is, is on the rise. They're trying to re-emphasize that. Another way to think of that is to put in concrete terms, that's sort of vague, uh, concrete terms. Um, in the United States, we look at our demographic issues, and everybody says, oh, we have you know, so many old people, so many retirees. How are we ever going to support them? We have to get them Social Security. We have to have government programs. We have to do this. We have to have housing for them, with special nursing and Medicare and Medicaid and prescription drug benefits and all this government, 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 government. China, facing precisely the same problem, by the way, similar demographic problem, is saying virtuous children. That's how you solve that problem. Virtuous children take care of their parents. You don't need a government program. You need virtuous children. So it's a, it's, this, it's a totally different approach. Um, but whether this will work or not, I have absolutely no idea. But, but this, is, this, is, this, is the, this is the call. This is the concept. If, if you want to help people, do you need a government program that delivers from the outside finite goods as defined by laws and carried out by bureaucrats? Sometimes, sure. Or do you need better people who take care of the problems for themselves? But then how do you make sure they do that? See, one of the things in the United States, this wouldn't work at all because when you were 18, your parents just kick you out of the house. Sort of, it's a communal decision. If, you're, if your kids stay, stay at home when they're young, you read in the newspaper all the time, oh, 
Kids come home, right? Boomerang kids, they return. It's a terrible thing that kids have come back to their parents. This is awful. They should be out in the world on their own. Well, if you tell people they should be out in the world on their own their entire lives, well, when you get old and need help, why would they help you? What could possibly be the point? Right? And we know there's no joy in the family, no knowledge to pass along. Right? Nothing to learn there. You don't want, you don't want your kids around because they're awful. You don't want to be with your parents because they're awful. What an interesting system we've developed. <laughs> right? Isn't it, isn't it, isn't it strange? That the Chinese, the Confucius system is just exactly the opposite. It says, no, virtuous parents fulfill their responsibilities to their children. Virtuous children fulfill their responsibilities to their adults. And everybody is much happier in theory. In practice, right? Your, your mileage may vary. Uh, but but, the, but, the, but it's a complete, again, it's just a completely different outlook. And if you think about freedom and values, is it better to put your faith in your government to take care of you or your children? Notice if it's your children... Your, your view on your children and your relatives and your friend and your village is very different when your life literally depends on them. When you look on them and say, the quality of my retirement, the quality of my later years, my care, is dependent on these people. Benevolence and compassion starts to look like really good virtues. Right? Because you're not, you're not, it's not, uh, it's not, it's not some abstract concept. This is now a very real, potent, life-changing investment. Investment is the wrong word. See, all, I'm sorry I used that word because notice all our language is the language of profit. Minchus would say, why are you talking about investment? It's not investment, it's compassion. It's love. It's caring. And it's the wisdom to know how you do this appropriately and right-heartedness. So this, you know, it's, 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 a, it's a fascinating experiment. And again, it's an experiment that's going on right now today in China. 10,000 schools um, is, is nothing to, to sneeze at, particularly when it's already in the culture. If it were 10,000 schools for something that didn't exist, I would say check, check back in in 100 years. See if that has taken off. But it's 10,000 schools for something that already has a 2,000-year history. That, that's, you know, sort of lots of dry brush. The match, I think, was going to catch. And so, that, so, you know, when I was thinking about this, I thought, you know, the series called Forgotten Philosophers, we don't even know who Mencius is, essentially, in the West. We've sort of heard of Confucius, don't know what he stands for, probably haven't heard of Mencius. Um, but I think there's a very real argument today. If we were in China, he wouldn't be forgotten, of course, by the way. The Chinese, the communists did their best, but it didn't work. People still knew who Mencius is. But right now, today, probably the most influential philosopher in the world is Mencius. Because he's got a, a massive part of the Chinese um, communist bureaucracy going, ooh, what are we going to do? Uh, Mencius, let's do Mencius. That worked for 2,000 years, let's give it another go. Um, and so that really is this revival, this boom. Uh, some people say, by the way, that this is just a naive cover, right? That this is just a, a, a power play by the communists to try and do the best they can to maintain power when they're under threat from Western ideals. That could be true. I don't know. Who knows? 
But, it, but it's not a coincidence that this is what they chose. They could have said, you know, Thoreau. We really like that Thoreau guy. We've been reading some Thoreau. We think everybody should get a cabin. Right? That's not what they said. That would sort of be if the Taoists were taking over. If the Chinese government had decided to go Taoist, it would be something more like that. Um, that's not what they said. Uh, they said, hey, let's revisit our own past and cull from that what looks to be the best. And what they're culling is Minches. Um, not uh, unrelated, by the way, is it, you can look this up online, by the way. The, today in China, if you want to go to college, if you want to advance, get a good career, you take the Gakao, again, my pronunciation, I don't know how to pronounce this, Gakao, Gakao, it's a big national exam. And if, if you want to see a country that believes in tests, because they've been doing it for 2,000 years, look at some of the pictures. You'll have all the students who are going to take the exam in a buses lined up, the entire village dressed formally, will line the streets with flags, the mayor, all the important people will be out, and as they drive by, everybody waves to them, wishes them the best, um, in Beijing, taxi drivers, it's all free. If you're taking the test, during the days that you're there taking the test, you don't have to pay. Lots of restaurants will set up food outside for free for the test takers because these are future. This is another thing that Confucius teaches. It's not a coincidence that Confucianism is associated with exams. It's because Confucius believed in study and learning and wisdom and reflection. And so those systems are sort of coming back together. Uh, that the, the, what we look at like SAT college entrance exams, except for multiplied by like a thousand times of intensity, um, are, are, are starting to suck in these Confucianist ideals again. And the idea of education being the most valuable thing because it cultivates the virtues. Um, again, it's, it's almost hard for us to imagine. Um, but if you do well on these exams, particularly if you're from a village, you know, 10, 15,000 person village, not in Beijing, it's a little different, but um, if you do well on the exams, basically the entire village will throw you a party because you're a great person. They're, you're an investment in the future. You, you're, you're, you've become somebody. They know that they're going to, everybody in the village knows they're going to be better off because of you. And you look out and say, now I have an obligation to all of these people. It's a reciprocal relationship that's not built government down, our tradition. It's built from the family to the friends to the neighbors to the commune, the communal structure of the village to the region and then the government. So it's extraordinarily different. So when we think about this, like I said, this is, this is one uh, where I can say without a doubt, this is this Minch is forgotten, perhaps never known in the West, really, one might say. We've heard of Confucius, Minchus, but the Neo-Confucius movement, or I guess now it would be Neo-Neo-Confucius movement, um, is upon us. You can look it up online, read the newspaper stories, Wall Street Journal talks about this, all kinds of people talking about this. Uh, if it goes anywhere, again, I don't know, the future is hard to predict, but it's certainly, I think, amazing that 2,600 years later, the philosopher of the moment in China, in a very serious way, as Confucius students, Minchus. So thank you very much, Minchus.